Welcome to another episode of Wild Law Pod. I'm excited to have Devin O'Connell as our first guest host. She's a partner at Pence McMillan and Laramie, and you can find her full bio on the website or from her Wild Law Pod episode on mindfulness and the practice of law. Today, she has a wide-ranging conversation with Judge Richard Lavery, District Court Judge for Sweetwater County. Judge Lavery was born and raised in Rock Springs, Wyoming. He earned his Bachelor of Science in Accounting and Law degree from Creighton University. He practiced law in Evanston for 31 years until taking the bench on June 30, 2012. He was a part-time municipal judge for Evanston, Lyman, Mountain View, and Bear River, Wyoming from 1997 to 2012. He was a member of the Board of Officers and Commissioners for the Wyoming State Bar and served as president in 2009. In May of 2012, he was appointed district judge for the 3rd Judicial District in Sweetwater County, Wyoming, and began his service as district judge in July 2012. He is a member of the Commission on Judicial Conduct and Ethics, Civil Pattern Jury Instruction Committee, Courtroom Technology Committee, and the Access to Justice Commission. Please enjoy this episode. Judge Lavery, it's thank you for sitting down with me and talking about your life as a judge. Can you tell the listeners a little bit just about yourself? Thank you, Devin. So I was uh, born and raised in Rock Springs, went to Rock Springs High School, uh, went to college, undergraduate at Creighton University, and I went to law school at Creighton University and uh, was actually, I was married uh, and we, uh, we were actually thinking about going out to Sacramento. I'd been accepted into a program to get a master's in tax and uh, kind of a, one of my best friends, older sister was married to a lawyer over at Evanston and his name was Tim Bepler. And so they were looking for somebody. So I, I came over to Rock Springs to see my folks after I graduated that summer in 1981. And I drove over and met with Tim and Larry and they offered me a job and I thought, you know, it's, we've been poor for all this time. Let's, let's settle down and start making some money. So I landed in Evanston. Well, you and I have that Evanston connection together. Can you, can you explain who you're talking about when you talk about Larry and, and Tim Bepler and what was the firm called at the time? So the firm had just, it was uh, Lehman and Bepler. And of course, Larry Lehman was uh, circuit court judge and, in Uinta County and then became a, a district court judge in Carbon County and then ultimately became a Supreme Court justice, chief justice of the Supreme Court. And um, he and Tim uh, Bepler was a Casper guy who was uh, at clerk for Judge Rose or Justice Rose and, had, and Larry had convinced him to come over because it was the boom time. Oil and gas was crazy. Evanston was crazy. It was like 19, they graduated in 1976. And so um, Tim had worked in Cheyenne a couple of years and Larry called him and said, you know, I just ran for county attorney and, and got the position. At that time, it was a part-time job and my office is busy. He, he took over Vince Vihar's practice. Uh, Tony Vihar, who was living in camera at the time, had called Larry and said, hey, come over and take over my dad's practice. So Larry did. And so he had a private practice and he was county attorney. So Tim went over, became a deputy county attorney. And, and then Tony hired uh, Skip Jacobson mm -hmm. and they had a firm in camera. And when I started, 
they had just merged. And so uh, Vihar and Jacobson and, and uh, Lehman and Bepler became Vihar, Lehman, Bepler and Jacobson. And that's who I went to work for. And they're, they're all wonderful people. What, what, that was 81? 1981. Can you tell us a little bit about the practice of law in 1981 in southwestern Wyoming, the Wild West? Well, Sweetwater County, Uinta County, Lincoln County, were all in oil and gas booms. And so we had uh, workers from all over the United States and there wasn't any place to live. And they had, they had created these things called man camps. And there would be, you know, hundreds of men uh, living in these trailers in these man camps, and they had, uh, they had on-site food and uh, everything you can imagine to take care of them. But that meant they were single. They had a lot of money, and so on Friday and Saturday night, town was wild, and so lots of uh, lots of crime and. Uh, but lots of deals going on too. People were getting, uh, people in the ag industry were leasing, um, mm -hmm. signing up for oil and gas leases and uh, service companies were coming to town and uh, people were needing uh, lawyers from criminal defense to organizing a corporation to, to do business in, in Wyoming and in, in the Southwestern part of the state. So it was crazy. It was so busy, but it was a lot of fun too. How long were you in private practice, Judge? So I was in private practice in some form or fashion until I got appointed over here. But, you know, our firm changed over the years. Uh, Skip, uh, well, Larry left first when he became the uh, county court judge. And I, you know, that would have been mid 80s. And then at the end of the 80s, Skip went to work for the Spence firm. And then, uh, Tony uh, and Sharon Rose, who came on a year after I did to start, and uh, Tim and I continued. And Tim and I were in Evanston, and Sharon and Tony were in Camera, and then we ended up closing the Camera office when things slowed down, and so we all ended up in Evanston together. together. And then, you know, right around 2000, Tony went out on his own, and Tim, a couple years later, mm -hmm. And it was Sharon and I until July of 2012 when I got appointed. But our practice changed over the times. You know, I started out doing lots of uh, uh, business uh, planning, uh, state planning with Tim and uh, organizing businesses, buying and selling, helping people buy and sell their businesses. Well, we all did a little bit of everything. We did divorces and, and real estate contracts and um, other kinds of civil litigation. There was a period of time, probably starting in maybe 83 or 84, where we really got into civil litigation, plaintiff's personal injury. Uh, and that lasted until probably the mid nineties. And that was fun, but it was a completely different thing from what we were doing, but it got all of us involved. And, you know, we probably had an active caseload at any one time of 30 cases that were all pretty good cases. And, and that was, you know, and of course, Skip and Tony were kind of the leads in that and Larry a little bit uh, in terms of uh, first chair and things like that. But when I started, I hadn't been in a courtroom much. I was just a baby lawyer and 
So, you know, it was doing research and taking depositions, defending depositions, and then doing motion hearings and up to the mid nineties by that. And by that time I'd got a chance to try a few cases and I enjoyed litigation, but it's stressful, especially that kind of litigation where you've invested a lot of money and it's on a contingent fee and those kinds of things. But it, it was, it was exciting too. Um, and so we had some fun doing that. And then, uh, you know, I, I mentioned that Tony moved on and, and Tim moved on. So just Sharon and I, in 1987, I was appointed the city prosecutor and I did that for 10 years. And so I did the misdemeanor prosecutions and things like that. And then uh, the judge at the time was John Phillips, who was, who was Judge Greg Phillips' older brother. And he left the practice of law in, in 1997 and we were going to get a new judge and and I didn't like the the thought of who was going to be my new judge in, in city court. So I put my name in. That's how I got to be a mm -hmm. judge the first time. And so uh, I got appointed as the city judge. And I did that until I came over here. So for 15 years. And if you were the city judge in Evanston, it was kind of a natural to be the, the town judge, judge in Mountain View and Lyman. So I did that. And then, boy, probably in... Sometime in the 90s, I also got a contract to do OAH hearings. And what I learned from all of that, uh, you know, the here I did administrative hearings, mostly driver, driver's license suspensions and revocations, so DUIs and things like that. But what I learned about being a judge versus being a, a lawyer is I like being a judge better. And I think that there's a different skill set. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're an advocate, you really have to take on and become your client. You know, you take on what they think, what they want, what they want to try to achieve. And, you know, you obviously have to pare that down a little bit with your client because they, they get their eyes get big and they think they're going to cash in and you got to temper that a little. But it's it really is remaining that advocate and not worrying about what's going on on the other side other than being prepared to defend it. Um, and it's, it's fun and exciting, but it's stressful. And I didn't like it as much. I liked sitting and listening and then making the decision. Mm -hmm. And I really found that I enjoyed that a lot. So when I put in for the Uinta County job, when uh, Judge Troughton retired, mm -hmm. and then uh, when Judge Mealy, who was circuit court judge, retired later, probably what, 2006 or seven. I put him for the circuit court judge job and I made it into the final three and Mike Greer got that job. Who's a wonderful judge and is still over there in, in Uinta County. But uh, then this opportunity came up and you know, I'm from here. I know this place. I like this place. And so I thought it was a natural one and I put in and, you know, you never know with judicial selection, how that's going to go. Having done it before, it's pretty arduous. But uh, I had uh, Justice Burke write a letter for me and we were talking one day on the phone and he said, and it was after I had gotten appointed and he said, what did you think about the process? And I said, it's just nerve wracking. Mm -hmm. And he goes, you know, I always thought there's a lot of serendipity in, in uh, getting these jobs that uh, everything just aligns just right and it ends up being you. And, I, I, that is so interesting. As you know, I'm on the JNC and I'd love to talk to you about, about that process, but let's talk about why you chose to decide 
to apply for any of the judgeships. What it sounds like you had a successful practice um, that you were, you know, content in in your legal life, so to speak. What made you decide to apply to be a judge? Well, it's an important position, you know, in terms of our system. Um, having a good judge is key. Um, you want somebody that's that's prepared and ready to take on the responsibility that wants to do it. You know, I, I knew judges that didn't like being a judge and that impacts their, their, uh, their, their skill, you know, their, their desire to, to put in the time to do what you need to do. And, um, it's just an incredibly important job and the district court is hard. Um, but it's so rewarding. You know, I have to tell you, it's just something that, what's uh, rewarding about it. You know, and it, there's so many different kinds of cases that we see. So, you know, you think about uh, you know, setting up, uh, making sure people get a guardianship and a conservator set up correctly, the right people uh, to monitor it and make sure that things are being done the right way. You know, you're, you're making sure that people are, are mm -hmm. being taken care of or in a family law case, you know, you, you know. Anybody that has a family knows how important it is. Anyone that's been a kid, I guess, and raised in a family. And so those cases are so important, how they end up and, and, and trying to get people to see that they've got to get past it and those things. You know, I've worked really hard trying to um, help people get through that period of time in their life. Criminal cases, you know, you're, you've got the idea of, uh, that you have to give the defendant a fair trial. They're innocent. And you mm -hmm. have to work very hard to do that. And uh, But if they get convicted, then you've got to think about the other side. You know, what do I need to do uh, as a sentence to make sure that this person gets rehabilitated, that the, that the punishment is appropriate, that they um, don't do it again? You know, you try to work on all those things. But in every one of those areas, how they how those things turn out is just incredibly important, not just for the system itself, but for, for, for the public, for the people that put us here. And I, I just, I honor that. I think that's, um, a, a rare answer, not, not a rare answer from judges, but it, it is sometimes the job is viewed as a grind. And how do you respond to that? The, the job as a district court judge is a bit of a grind because you do see the worst of the worst of humanity. And that's usually what you see every day, all day long. You know, it's, uh, or that's what people think at least. And I get that. I, I remember, uh, one time it was at a, it was at a, uh, a bar convention and they had a panel. I think it was chief justice kite at the time, put it together to talk to people about, mm -hmm. you know, that the judiciary is a good place to be. And, uh, there were lawyers in there that, you know, had done family law and are not doing it anymore and swear they'll never take another case. And, um, you know, I tried to, to say to them, look, being a judge in a family law case is so different than being the lawyer in the case. You know, I'm not, they're not, the clients are, that are in so much pain, you know, uh, during this period of their life, they're not calling me. They're not talking to me about all of their deep, dark mm -hmm. secrets and all the things they want, how bad their spouse is. I'm making the decision uh, where their lawyers are presenting the case to me. And that's that's not that bad. It really isn't. I mean, maybe people don't like it, but I, I don't mind it. Uh, I like trials. 
I like watching lawyers, uh, especially good lawyers. You know, I, I, I mentioned uh, to you uh, when you got here that I've got a trial a week from Monday that's 12 trial days in a medical malpractice. That's going to be a grind, but there's going to be a lot of uh, neat things going on, you know, mm-hmm. in, in just the the uh, novel legal arguments that are going to be made, the testimony, the expert witnesses. When lawyers are good, that stuff is fun. It's uh, it's riveting. You know, I have to kind of make sure I'm paying attention like a judge should pay attention and not, not like a fan. Um, and so it's, uh, you know, I like being in the courtroom. And it doesn't really matter what it is, unless people aren't doing their job. People? Or lawyers. Well, lawyers. Yeah. I mean, we yeah. get a lot of pro se people, too. Um, and that's its own. That's that I would say, in terms of my view of, of the district court in this day and age, um, pro se people, self-represented litigants. Mm-hmm. That's that's a tough area. Why do you think there's more pro se litigants and how do you handle those pro se litigants? So there's several reasons I think we have pro se litigants. There are those people that can't afford a lawyer. And, you know, we have legal services that try to fill that need, but there are, we don't have enough people to even come close. But then there's also a group of people um, that know that there's enough information out there that they can do it themselves. Uh, I, I learned a term when I was a member of the Board of Bar Commissioners, we had some speakers talk to us about pro se litigants and pro se people, basically, self-represented people. It was called disintermediation. And it it's doing it yourself. Mm-hmm. And people do it in every aspect of life. You know, why do I need um, a mechanic to fix my car? I can find out how to fix this on the internet. Uh, why do I need a doctor? Sometimes I wonder if people perform surgery on themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just everybody can do it themselves. The information is out there. And so you get a lot of people that they could pay a lawyer. They just don't want to and think they can do it themselves. Mm-hmm. But I, I have to tell you, that's not true. You know, there are some things that lawyers know that people don't. And they, they make a mess of things a lot. Mm-hmm. How, how do you handle pro se litigants as opposed to if someone is represented or if one side is unrepresented and the other side is represented? Both those scenarios probably make it difficult for you. So if they're both pro se, I, once they've requested a hearing or if they haven't requested one and it had, nothing's happened for a period, I'll set it for a hearing. And I'll review their pleadings, their financial affidavits and all of those things, if they've done them. If they haven't done them, then I'll tell them they have to do those first. You know, just calculating child support. For us, you know, we go to the website and uh, it's pretty Mm -hmm. easy to fill out. But when it says presumptive, presumptive child support amount, an average person doesn't know what that means. You know, heck. An average person doesn't know what it means when you when it says you must serve this on the opposing party. Right. And then what is service? Is service taking it to the sheriff or is service mailing it to him? There's there's instructions and the instructions are pretty good, but people generally don't read them. Yeah. 
So usually there'll be something wrong, especially if kids are involved, where I'll need to have a hearing. And so when they come in and there aren't any lawyers, I don't do it in a formal trial way. I have them both stand up and raise their right hands and I put them under oath and I ask the plaintiff what they want. I ask the defendant what they want. And it's a lot less formal because you know, when I used to do a municipal court trials with, with, a lay, with a lay defendant, I tell them, you know, you have an opening statement. It's not evidence. You're telling me what you're going to tell me. And then you have a chance to tell me that's under oath and that is evidence. And then you get a closing and that's when you tell me what you told me. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, you don't need to do it three times. Once is plenty. So, yeah. so that's how I deal with, with when there's a lawyer, then you got to kind of step back and, and treat it in more of a formalistic fashion. Like it's a trial. And um, usually lawyers are pretty good at helping move that along too. You know, they know that that person is at somewhat of a disadvantage and they certainly don't want to, uh, compromise their client, but they do it in a way that you can get through it. And mm -hmm. that's, that's nice to hear, actually. How would you think, how do you think, uh, judge that how you practice law and where you practice law, how did that help form how you're a judge? And I'm not sure that that question, um, it sounds more confusing than I mean it to be, but how did your experience in a relatively rural practice um, form how you view the cases that come before you? I, th I think it's bigger than that, honestly. Um, so there's the practice and, and how we practiced with each other. And, but times are different now. Um, but when I started in 81, there were probably three law firms in Evanston with more than two lawyers. Mm. Mm. That's not true anymore. And so uh, all of those firms kind of moved around up into Lincoln County, <clears throat> a, a little bit up in Sublet County. We came over here to Sweetwater County. You know, we had more sizable practices. Now it's shrunk down to where there's almost only solo practitioners. So it was a little bit different that way. But I think the things that influence you, you know, I had my partners were some of the best people in the world. When I started, Larry and Tim sat me down and said, besides being a lawyer in this community, you have to do something. And, you know, having gone to a Jesuit college and law school, that was put into my head. My parents put that into my head. So it was pretty easy to, to uh, do that. And I took a turn on the housing authority, you know, and, and it just started. It was brand new. And Larry's, uh, Larry's first wife, Julie, was the executive director great woman. And, uh, we built all kinds of public housing, senior housing. That was a lot of fun, but we did, we did good things. And so mm -hmm. I served on some kind of board the whole time I was there. I, and, uh, I got into bar service, but all those things impact you because you see, um, the problems of that people have in their lives and, and, you know, you see solutions and things that can make life better for people. And, you know, I did a, uh, when I was municipal judge, we set up a juvenile drug court in the municipal court, which wasn't very popular with a lot of people at the time. Um, uh, Chief Justice Voigt didn't like the idea that we were doing a juvenile court in the municipal court. But Judge Troughton, who was our district court judge, didn't want to see a kid with a drug offense or alcohol offense in juvenile court. And Judge Mealy was the one that talked me into doing it. 
So we did it and it worked. Mm -hmm. um, and they sent kids to our, our little drug court. But I learned a lot about drug courts and I learned a lot about addiction and substance abuse. And today, that's such a big part of what we do in every area. You know, methamphetamine, uh, now fentanyl. So all, the, all of your life experiences kind of shape the way you view the world. And it certainly shapes the way that I judge. You know, I, I, I don't think I've ever been shocked by anything. You know, I've had some crazy things happen, no question about it, but, you know, it's life. And I've done enough different things in my life and tried enough different things that uh, I feel pretty comfortable sitting on the bench if I, if I put the time in and, you know, focus on that case and, and listen. All right. Do you still like what you do? I do. They're going to kick me out in a few years. Right, when you become constitutionally <clears throat> when I, when I age out, as they say. Talk about, right? you said things have changed significantly, and I, I'm going to shift to that. It, it seems to me, and I, I've um, been practicing for 23 years, even in that time frame, in my opinion, things have shifted. And mo most of it has to do with what the rule of law is, what people view as the rule of law, and how it how it is viewed by our citizens. And I want you just to address that. First of all, what it what would be your definition of the rule of law and why is it important, even in this day in these changing times? It's the underpinning of the democracy. It's the we're a nation of laws that uh, everybody gets treated equally under the law. It doesn't matter who you are, uh, that uh, the law applies the same to everybody. And so every day you got to make that happen. Yeah, you've got to work to, to make that happen. You know, when I say things are different, the practice of law is different. The, the, the way our communities are put together is different. You know, when I so when I started in Evanston, we had a monthly bar meeting. All the lawyers got together over here in Sweetwater County. They have they had a monthly bar dinner. Uh, and, and the reason for that was you had two communities and it was kind of hard for one community to go to the other community for lunch. Mm -hmm. It was easier to do it after hours, which made them a little bit more fun, probably. But uh, but they did it and they got together and there was a, a camaraderie uh, amongst the lawyers and even the judges. The judges would come and, um, you know, you'd get a chance to just be people around each other and get to know about each other's families and mm -hmm. the things we like to do and all of those kinds of things. And that doesn't exist anymore. Um, it's pace of life. You know, um, one of the things that technology has done is made life go by at breakneck speed. Mm -hmm. Everything is bigger, faster, you know, it's just the size of documents. And, you know, it was when I, when I, when I started in 1981, we had typewriters. Can you imagine putting out the kind of documents that we put out today on a typewriter? No. You had to use brevity. It had to be short, simple, you know, a few pages, 10 pages at the most. That would be an incredibly long document. Mm -hmm. And then we got the mag typewriters that you could take out a sentence or two and rephrase them. And then finally, we got the display writers, which were the IBMs that had the, uh, they would run with a DOS program, but uh, you could put a disk in and, and do word perfect. And so all of a sudden we were in hog heaven. And that was, that all happened in the 80s. But 
the computer revolution has impacted the practice a lot in an amazing way to me. It's just changed the way that we live. And, and now cell phones, you know, the, you don't have to talk to anyone anymore. Um, you text them, you email them, uh, but you never pick up the phone. And I guess if I had a, uh, a complaint about life as a judge now, it's that that doesn't happen. Doesn't happen um, between lawyers or between, I mean, between families. What What do you mean? It doesn't happen anymore at all with anybody. Well, between lawyers is, is probably the most. I mean, when I practiced law, I hated the phone because I was on the phone so much, mm -hmm. um, talking to people, clients, to opposing counsel. You know, being on the phone was a big part of the job. I don't think people use the phone at all anymore except to text somebody. So, you know, you get a, a, you know, two days before trial, you get a motion for a continuance and it doesn't say anything about what opposing counsel thinks. They haven't even talked to each other. And so why not? Mm -hmm. you know, hey, I need to get a continuance. What do you think? Um, I thought that was required that we had to confer. It is. Interesting. It just doesn't happen. Interesting. Well, let's, um, let's talk a little bit about the, the the nomination process. You mentioned it as we were chatting, but um, can you tell those who may be listening a little bit about the judicial nominating process? What what is it? Um, what is it like to go through? Let's start with um, how do you apply to be a judge? Generally, generally speaking, what do you do? So. Um you find out there's a vacancy. There's a notice from the state bar and the Supreme Court both on it that tells you that there's a vacancy for a particular position. And there's an application, they call it ex expression of interest uh, that you need to fill out. And I, I pulled out mine. You found yours, huh? From 2012. It is 17 pages long. It's essay questions. It's just arduous. And you want it to be perfect. I mean, you want it to be the best piece of uh, work you've done, you know, if you, if you if you want to be a judge. And so you spend a lot of time with it. And I did. Um, and then they want a writing sample on top of that. And you want a good writing sample. You know, I always uh, I always tell uh, people that ask me, you know, as a judge who, who they practice in front of when they're applying, do you have any uh, suggestions? I said, have a good writing sample, mm -hmm. you know. Um, People notice that, you know, you need to be able to write. And uh, if you can't, that's going to hurt you. And if you submit something that's not well done, has lots of spelling errors and grammar mistakes, then it's going to be a problem. And so you, you both the application and the writing, writing sample have to be top notch. The in the application you mentioned, you have to put judges that you've practiced in front of. What... What do you, how do you recommend people handle that? I, you got to call the judge and ask him if they'll give you a good recommendation. Just be blunt. Are you willing to give me a favorable recommendation? And as a judge, do you feel comfortable telling folks? I yes do. or no? Okay, do, good yes. for you. And I talk to them a little bit, you know, because of the, the one thing that happens with judges is we could get requests from, from people we don't know very well. Mm-hmm. You know, they're here and they have to have three judges and they may not have spent much time in front of three judges. 
You know, I think about prosecutors, they probably spend time in front of two judges. Yeah. Probably not three. So who's the third judge? Mm -hmm. And so um, that happens all the time where you, you say, well, you know, tell me a little bit, bit about yourself. You know, you've been over here a few times and um, I, I liked what I saw, but I don't really know you. And so I'll, I'll talk to him a little bit. Um, but yeah, and then and to get three judges and three lawyers, and two lay people. Two others, yeah. But you should ask all of them and, and get, get good references, the best you can get. I, I think the commission looks at those. Well, as a member of the commission, I can attest Sometimes that's, I mean, that's all we know about you. You know, if we don't know you or if we haven't practiced in um, in the area where we're interviewing people, we just, uh, that's the only way we know you, particularly the lay people on the commission. Do you think that application is, um, I, I don't know if that application has changed very much since you applied, but do you have any thoughts on whether or not it's too much, too little? Does it steer people away in your experience? How do you respond to the application itself, the expression of interest? Um, I think that it, it it's it's detailed. You know, I was, uh, they want to know about your law practice in detail, the areas of law you practice mm -hmm. in, your litigation uh, experience and those kinds of things. They want to know about civil versus criminal and describe those things. And, you know, um, but then I think the hardest ones are... Uh, <laughs> as it gets towards the end, they get lengthier and more essay like, you know, here's describe the most significant matters which you've litigated as a practitioner or handled as a judge and give citations if the cases were reported. Mm -hmm. Holy cow. That's a tough question. That's a tough question. Yeah. But an important question, right? What, what has impacted you as a litigator or a judge and why? I mean, I think I get why that's asked because that's a pretty telling question. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely true. Absolutely true. But all of the questions are like that. And I don't it should take work to fill out this application. Um, I don't feel bad about it. I, I will be honest and say it is. It's onerous. It's mm -hmm. it's a task. I can't tell you how many how many hours I put into this. So then this application. Certain deadline has to go to the Supreme Court. Um, so the, the judicial nominating commission has 60 days to receive the applications, interview candidates, and uh, submit three names to the governor. So the application is about the first 30 days. It might be a little shorter, mm -hmm. not, you know, first four weeks or something like that. So then the commission has the, the next 30, 40 days to review all the applicants, uh, meet with the ones who they think are deserving of an interview and pick three names. And so, you, you know, by, by having this onerous application, now the commission has some work to do. Read them all. Uh, and depending on how many apl applicants you get, that could be a book. It's true. And every single book deserves to be to be read. There is a lot of work that goes into that. And the right shame. If, yeah. Yeah. Would it be a shame if, we're, if it were if it were unread? The so, JNC interview. Let's talk about that. So, you know, and having done it three or four times, I, uh, I knew what to expect, but I, you know, I, I think when I, when I got to Green River, it's nerve wracking. And that was at the time, 
Justice Chief Justice Kite was running the commission. The Chief Justice runs the commission. They were picking if if the jurisdiction that was getting the appointment was didn't have a member on the commission, either a lay member or a judge mm-hmm. member, then they would add a non-voting community person. So we had a a lay person and a lawyer uh, that were added to the so that instead of being three uh, lay people and three lawyers, it was four lay people and four lawyers plus the chief. So nine people sitting in a jury room and there were two rounds of questions. And so, but, you know, by the time that I had applied for this job, I was so much better prepared because I'd done so many things um, in my life that, uh, and bar service was an incredible advantage. I think, you know, I learned so much about the, uh, issues not only here in the state of Wyoming, but throughout the country, the issues that affect the practice of law. Mm-hmm. You know, I was tuned in to everything that was going on uh, on the cutting edge of the practice of law by having been in that position. And that's helpful to know what kinds of things Supreme Courts are thinking yeah. about, legislatures are thinking about to, to help the practice of law. And so, and bar uh, organizations, the things they're thinking about. And so, I got an education and the other thing that bar service did to me, and this is a plug for bar service, which I think you'd agree. I didn't go to, to the university of Wyoming law school. My opportunity to meet Wyoming lawyers was when I was um, on the state bar. We traveled around the state. We had meetings with local bars and I got to meet a lot of great people that way. And uh, I really, really thoroughly enjoyed it and benefited from it. I, I wholeheartedly agree that bar service is critical. And so the interview, the interview I thought was yeah. fun. Uh, and the previous interviews I thought were nerve wracking. And it was just a difference in, in how many years it had been. Experience, and, life experience. Life experience. And, yeah. yeah. I enjoyed every question. So you get the call from the chief justice or the email. I, I'm, I'm not sure how you found out saying you've got an, you've got an interview with the governor. You're one of the final three. Tell me what that feels like and what, what goes through your head when you get that call it well having had that experience once before it's it you feel great but you know it's not over mm-hmm. you know it's not over so how do you prepare for the interview with the governor and what is that like who is the governor that appointed you matt mead okay how was how was that interview i'm sure it's different for with every governor so, but how did you prepare and what was it like i kind of so i had interviewed previously with uh, with governor friedenthal and so I kind of knew how the governors um, structured the. They would they would always have somebody with them, a mm-hmm. chief of staff or um, one of the lawyers that they knew from the AG's office. I'm trying to remember who Governor Mead had. It was a woman. I think it was from the U.S. Attorney's office with him that came over with him to be in the administration. So, you know, both lawyers. Um, the fact that they were both lawyers, I think. Uh, made it possible. They, they asked the questions back and forth. Um, mm-hmm. But to get ready for it, I mean, getting ready, this gets you ready for it. The application gets you ready for it. Just going through that process, going through the interview with the Judicial Nominating Commission. I just needed to be able to relax. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you said you applied three times? Is that what? Three or four. Okay. What kept you applying? I wanted to be a judge. Yeah. It was something that I thought, you know, for having the, judi- the 
municipal and uh, quasi-judicial stuff with the state, I enjoyed it. You know, it was something that I liked doing. Well, how would you, what words of wisdom would you give to folks who go through that process once? Because it is arduous, and, and I'm not sure until you go through it if you realize just how tough it is. And it, it's hard to convince people to go through it two, three, four times. What, what words of wisdom would you give to, to keep on trying? You know, I hope it's the thing, same thing I, my parents taught me and that I tried to teach my kids. Don't give up. Don't let being told no stop you from pursuing something you want to do. And I, I think that those are words to live by. You know, you should never give up if it's what you want. Uh, and, you know, you get out the old application and dust it off and update it. And uh, just don't be sloppy about it. You know, do a good job. Since you applied to be a judge, um, I don't think it's a secret that the overall number of judicial applications are down. And, you know, there's been bar surveys and meetings and everything about why, why that is. Do you have an opinion as to why applications to become district court judge or circuit court judge are, are, have dwindled? I don't think that people view it as a job that is uh, something they would enjoy. And they see, they don't, people generally don't like family law. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people that way. You know, I, I, I saw some uh, some of the last uh, bar survey question and answers, and that was a big part of it, is people not wanting to get into family law. Um, and there were a lot of suggestions that there be a separate family court. You know, somebody, uh, uh, one of the respondents said that, why do we need a chancery court? There's not enough people to even support that court. Why not have a family court? And, free up some time for the district court to do other things. Um, you know, I don't know if that's a good idea or not, but it's, it's, it's just an example of the fact that uh, I don't think people want to do some of the things that we do. And, and maybe, I don't know, um, there's a learning curve. You, do, you know, I was lucky enough to have done just about everything that a district court judge does, but that's not a common thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just because of the kind of practice that we had in Evanston at the time. I don't even know if I could say that about uh, Evanston now. But, uh, you know, if somebody needed a guardianship, we did a guardianship. If they needed a probate, we did a probate. And so I'd done a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. I'd done criminal stuff, uh, defended people. I, so I, I, I knew what the job was. Oh, that's the other thing you ought to do is really there are case statistics and those kinds of things that are out there that you can get on the Supreme court's website. Look what the caseload looks like. You know, that we're not all the same, you know, the, mm-hmm. uh, and, and uh, be familiar with that both for the, for your interview with the commission, but also the governor know what's going on in the community you're looking at. And in all of the, every one of my applications, I always did that. I looked at the workload study. I knew what the cases looked like the number of cases, civil versus criminal, family law. Um, and, you know, obviously every, every community is going to have family law and everybody's going to have uh, criminal stuff. But I don't think the criminal, criminal uh, dockets are the same around the state. I think there's a wide variation. Um, oh, I'm sure that's true. I'm sure that's true. Right? Why do you think people hate family law? I mean, it's a, it's a trial. It's, it's litigation. It's, it doesn't seem to be any more 
jarring than a criminal case, right? It, uh, uh, why do you think people don't like family law? Because I think that they feel like the the people, the, the litigants are so unhappy, mm-hmm. you know, that they're just miserable and um, they just don't like the idea of being around that, you know, because you've got someone who is, is in a period of their life. They're, they're not miserable people, but they're at a miserable time in their life. Maybe, maybe at the worst point in their life, their they, family's falling apart. Yeah, exactly. And if they have children, it's even worse. And so, you know, they're desperate. Uh, they want to, they want to be successful. They want to get what they need out of it. You know, I mean, if it's, if it's property and things like that, you only get one shot, Mm -hmm. how you divide up that pie. And they're afraid. They don't know what the future is going to look like. And so I think having a client that is in that state is difficult for some people. But from your perspective, why do you think that I get, um, I mean, I do most, mostly family law, but I understand why it, you know, it does get emotional and people are unhappy often with the product that comes out of it, either from a settlement or from a from a judge's decision. But being a judge, why do you think that that is a more difficult type of trial than, say, a medical malpractice or a personal injury where people are really harmed or a criminal case where there's victims that are hurt and a, and a criminal defendant that is struggling, you know, to keep his freedom or her freedom? You know that. Do you understand what I'm trying to get at there? Well, when you when you talk about uh, the violence that has occurred against judges and lawyers, uh, I think the highest incidence is in family law. It's not the criminal. It is your uh, cases. It's family law. So there, I think there is a difference. You know, in the criminal sphere, you do have someone that's not happy, but most of the time, especially in district court, there are there are. Very few um, litigants in district court that are first time. You know, Mm -hmm. these people have struggled through their life and had scrapes with the law. So they may not be happy about their circumstance, but they know what's going on. They know what's going to happen or how it's going to go. You know, criminal cases generally are easier than the civil cases because they have kind of a rhythm. You know, you go to circuit court, then you come up for your arraignment, then there's a little bit of discovery and maybe a motion and a mm-hmm. free trial and a trial. It just goes that way. And so even though they may not like it, they know what to expect. In family law, not many people know what's going to happen. Um, and they're losing their house. They might lose their job. They might lose their kids. And those are just monumental uh, changes in their life. And I think those people are incredibly distressed. Mm-hmm. And so the the responsibility of that, first of all, as a lawyer, to take that on, knowing that these people are desperate uh, and they may not feel like they have enough money to make it happen. That they, can, I, can I pay my lawyer enough? Are there, am I going to need to hire appraisers or evaluators? You know, what am I going to have to spend? And so the desperation, I think, bothers a lot of lawyers. They don't want to get near it. Do you think that that is the only barrier? Or what what barriers do you think are keeping lawyers from wanting to join the bench or wanting to enter into the application pool at all? And is there and what can we as a as a as a legal community in Wyoming do to maybe 
help help lower some of those barriers? Well, it, apart from the kinds of cases and things, you know, because I, I think that those things you can you can deal with. And, and I it, when we were earlier when we were talking, a family law case for a judge is not like a family law case for a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And lawyers just don't realize that it's a much different thing um, because you're there for a short period of time. You know, I used to do mediation in family law, uh, and uh, well, still, I still do. do. You still but do. As, yeah. a, as a, when I was and private practice and that I, because I was a municipal judge, I could go to the national judicial college. So I took a mediation class and I, I did family law mediation. Same thing. I met those people and I saw their, their stress and pain and all that, but I only saw them for a day. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't that, that, uh, it wasn't going to wear on me. They weren't calling me. They weren't, uh, you know, wanting to know what's going on with my case and all that. I, I just helped them try to find a resolution. And that's similar as a judge, although you make the decision, you're not living with those folks like a lawyer has to do. Uh, but beyond just the types of things, because people, some people don't like criminal law. Mm-hmm. Um, I think time is something. Tell you know, me about that. What? Um, time to vacation, time with family. Yeah. But yeah. Um, it's time Free sensitive. Time. What we do, a lot of, a lot of what we do is time sensitive. You know, if, uh, if a juvenile um, is taken into custody, mm-hmm. I have to see that juvenile right away. Um, if uh, if someone is taken a, uh, because they're a danger to themselves or others in an involuntary, we have to see that person right away, three days. Um, same way with anybody that gets arrested on a warrant. I have to see that person. And I'm they're my cases. And uh, to some extent, we can help each other out, and we do. But there's a lot of demands on our time. And there's no period of time off. When I was in private practice, I could take as much time off as I wanted. It would affect the, my income, mm-hmm. but I could do whatever I wanted. Uh, you know, when uh, in the summertime, if I wanted to go golf on Friday, I went golfing on Friday. You know, I didn't bill any hours that day, but you know, there's and more you build them on Sunday, maybe or yeah, yeah. yeah. But mm-hmm. I, I can't do that here. You know, I have to be here. Is there something that that can be done in the system or is happening right now in the system that helps with that? I mean, do you need more staff? Do you need more, do we need more judges? Do we need more um, capability where you could hold a shelter care hearing? You know, if you were, if you happen to be in Cancun and you wouldn't want to interrupt your, but you know, in the case of an emergency, could you hold a shelter care hearing from remotely? Those kind of things are those in the works or what would you recommend? So when we, uh, when when the uh, legislature uh, created a, another judge in the third judicial district, so that we had a full time judge in 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 uh, Cameron and a full time judge in Evanston, and then two judges in Sweetwater County, that was a year or so ago. Um, we got together as a group and said, you know, we need to help each other. You know, get some time off, some mental health days, basically, and we did. And so we just informally amongst ourselves created a system where we get to pick a couple of weeks every year where the other three judges will sit in for us while we're gone, and we don't have to worry about calling in. We don't have to worry about uh, checking in with our judicial assistants or worrying about anything because they handle it. Someone's got it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I took two weeks off in May. Uh, first time I've done that in. Well, today is the end of my uh, 11th year on the bench. And so 
you know, it was wonderful. And, and I think being able to do that is helpful. Technology helps too. I, uh, the whole COVID thing brought all this technology to us and it also makes it so you, if you're not feeling good, you can stay home and work from home. Well, you probably shouldn't be working from home. You need to take some time mm-hmm. if you're not feeling good, but I've done that. You know, what everybody's so worried about uh, infectious illnesses now that if I felt like I, I got exposed to COVID last summer and I never ended up getting it, but I was worried about coming back to the office. So I just worked from home and I could do court from home. Mm-hmm. I, I kept a robe at my house and uh, I go down in the basement where there, where it was quiet and sitting here a case. Yeah. I, I mean, think I've done a case like that with you. Technology um, to a practitioner has helped so significantly because we can... If we have an understanding judge, you can drive. You used to have to drive for maybe smaller motion to compel hearings or something. And now judges are very gracious about holding those via teams. And boy, that's nice yeah. and it helps with the cost of those cases. But, um, I oh, have to but tell you. okay, there's a but. Let's well, hear it. I like having people in the courtroom. I just do. Um, you don't get a chance. And, and that's the other thing. A judge's life, it's kind of solitary, you know. There's that aspect of it, mm-hmm. uh, and so when COVID came, and that made it more solitary. And the only people I saw were my staff attorney and my JA. Um, I, I, my court reporter actually worked from home during that period of time because she was at risk, mm-hmm. and so my, my, you know, Holly and Tom, that was my. That was your world. That was my network. Uh, and everything else was on teams or when I went home uh, at night to, to my wife. There is something to be said for handing things to people and seeing them and seeing people at the bench. And I'm, I'm sure that that matters a lot to a judge. I, I, I get that. I just like the courtroom. I like what goes on in the courtroom. You know, there's a drama in there that doesn't come out on teams. Well, and so there's a lot of people that feel your the way that you do that do not transition that to applying for the bench. So to, just to wrap up this section about about applying to be a judge, um, give me your thoughts generally on what you think of how we pick judges, and is there a way to improve it? Is it you know compare it to in other states where they actually run a campaign and elect a judge? Talk about how we pick judges in Wyoming generally. You know, I don't think any system is perfect, but I don't think that there's any system that's better than this modified Missouri plan. Mm -hmm. I I think that uh, elections are fraught with trouble and problems uh, where you have judges who, you know, look how expensive elections have been become. Yeah. Um, What was the 45 million for that Supreme Court in in Wisconsin? Wisconsin? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's. It's mind boggling. And so I. I just think it's it's got so much uh, risk of problems, but you know people think our system is um, not not only that it's not perfect, but there's there's a, there's politics going on in it as well, um, and there's politics in everything to some extent. But I think this system does the if if here here's the big caveat if we get a good group applying, mm-hmm. you know, but if you won't apply. And, and throw your hat out there, um, then it's going to be more and more difficult. Uh, some of the comments that I saw in that bar survey were, 
you know, why is it always a prosecutor and why is it always somebody from the AG's office? And um, well, it's because that's who's applying. You know, uh, we're not getting a great cross section. I don't think many civil practitioners apply. You know, I don't know that for sure, but people who I've encouraged to, they look at me like I'm crazy. Why would I do that? But I think a lot of civil practitioners are making a lot of money now. You know, I think the money's pretty good in that in that realm. And so to take a pay cut, uh, to not be able to not let your time be your own, uh, I think that, but they worked hard too. That's the one thing that I always uh, see because, you know, when they're in litigation and things like that, I know how that goes. It seems to me that it would be very attractive to a civil practitioner to not be a slave to the contingency fee agreement or to the billable hour. I mean, as a judge, you don't, time is a totally different thing. Yes, it's restricted, but it also is not dependent on whether or not you get paid. And as a lawyer, as you remember, for that billable hour, it's uh, pretty critical or that contingency fee agreement. So I would think that would be attractive. But I've sure had had enough of them tell me that they wouldn't consider it. Yeah. But so then you're left to the people that do want to do it. Um, The one thing about prosecutors is they spend a lot of time in the courtroom. So, um, and their time's not their own either. In a lot of ways, they're elected officials. Um, you know, they've got to be, they've got to be at work. And Public defenders probably as same. well. Yeah. 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 And we've talked a little bit about this already, but can oh, you. One last thing. Oh, sorry. Sorry. The, Let me. The last part of selection. Oh yeah. Yeah. Waiting for the governor to call. Oh, that's is that nerve wracking? Oh my goodness! Because you get a call immediately under the JNC, or from the JNC, right? From the chief. I think it's pretty close to the end of the sixty days by the time you get the interviews done. So I always assumed it was. I I mean I, my experience, you're called that day after the interview, and and we send the name up, set names up, but. So then it's thirty days, and you know I haven't paid close attention to uh, how Governor Gordon does it. But Governor Meade used to take the whole time. And that was nerve wracking. Yeah. You know, and, and people know you're in the final three. It gets published. So people are calling and wanting to know what's going on. Have you heard anything yet? And it's just maddening. And then when you get the call, you actually don't know if it's going to be good news or bad news. Um, is, does the governor come did the governor come right out and tell you or did he mess with you a little bit? So. I remember the conversation. It was a Friday. It was the last day that it could be. I think the day might have expired on the weekend, but it was Yeah. It was gonna be that day. So I got to the office at like seven thirty and you know, I'm waiting for the phone to ring. Nobody else is there. And right at eight o'clock the phone rings and I said, Law office and uh, Governor Mead said, Rick? And I said, Yeah. He goes, Matt Mead, you're my pick. Oh, so he didn't make you wait. Nice. And it was it was uh, euphoric. It sounds and it sounds like you're still enjoying. It. I am. What is the most rewarding part of your job? I think um, when we have something like a big case or um, summary judgment decisions or you know written decisions in a case, I think. Uh, feeling like we got it right. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I know that you can't be a hundred percent right all the time. Um, and you do your best and that's all you can do. 
and the biggest thing I don't want to do is do it twice. You know, I don't want to be overturned on appeal and have to do it again. And so the, the, uh, the idea is to do the best you can and make sure that there's nothing to be appealed, but it happens. And I, those are sad days if I, when I find out that, uh Oh, we're going to have to do this one again. Fortunately, it hasn't happened very often. And what are there decisions that you have like lost sleep over or felt like you got wrong or I, and I'm not asking for a specific decision, but does that happen a lot as a judge that you're, that you're sort of tossing and turning? Sentencings are hard. Um, child custody cases are hard, you know, awarding money or, and those kinds of things are not nearly as difficult. And, you know, you put the, you want to get it right and you want to do the work, but taking away somebody's freedom and you do it all the time, but it never gets easier. Mm -hmm. It's a hard thing to do. When I do it, it's the right thing to do, but it doesn't mean it's like firing somebody. You know, if you have to fire a staff member, you don't feel good about those Even days. Even if they deserve it. Yeah, yeah you, don't you don't feel good about yeah. those days. And so when somebody has to lose their freedom, I don't feel good about that at all. Um, a tough family law case, if uh, you know, and I try to rule as fast as possible, but I go home, if I've, you know, split a family and seen people in tears, those are tough days. It's just, it's uh, life playing out right in front of you. And, you know. Somebody, somebody, I, I had to sentence a fellow just the other day who was a drug user and was kind of sloppy in where he kept his drugs and his child uh, picked up a pill and Ugh. died. And he was charged with a crime. And that's hard. So he not only lost his child due to his negligence but he now is going to likely go to prison. He is in prison, mm -hmm. but it's still incredibly tragic. You know, it's human tragedy. Um, and th those things are hard. So whenever I see human tragedy, yeah. But you see uplifting things too. You know, you see people who, uh, like in civil cases, personal injury cases, you see people who are remarkably resilient, who, who have some horrific injury that make a life that still keep going and pressing forward and living mm -hmm. their life. They, they, they don't let it ruin them. I mean, you just, you know, you see, pe you just see people that are incredible under difficult circumstances, victims of crimes who give victim impact statements. You know, you just see some things about humanity that give us hope. Do you remember a case or two that has affected you the most? As a judge? As a judge. Hmm, that's a tough one. You know, I, they all affect me when I'm doing them. But I think that... Uh, Sounds like the man that was a drug addict that left his pill that killed his baby is, might be one. Oh, that, 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 yeah, that affects you. Um, just seeing people that, you know, we, we see the worst of the worst in the criminal realm. We had a fellow, 18 years old, um, come up to come to Sweetwater County and murder one woman and slash the other one, nearly killing her. And, uh, you know, he was on, if you know, if you were, he was a sociopath. He was a bad, mm -hmm. bad man. Um, seeing what he did 
you know, seeing the evidence um, uh, or seeing, you know, like you get a shaken baby case where a child dies, um, that you'll see autopsy pictures of the eyes, you know. I tell jurors in those cases, I've been telling you all week, don't talk to anybody about this case. Case is over now. Go home and talk to somebody about this case. I don't have any money to give you counseling or anything like that, but one of the treatments for post-traumatic stress is talk to somebody. So find somebody you can talk to when you go home and talk to them about what you've been through and what you've seen. Because sometimes we do see things like that. Yeah. And, you know, we get uh, kind of uh, thick-skinned about it, but when you see it, you see it. And it's traumatic. Let's talk about lawyers. Um, we've been talking a long time about being a judge, and I had a million other questions to bring up with you. Um, let's shift to talking about lawyers. You were a former bar president, and I think I've told you this before, but you're kind of known in the bar as being a lawyer's judge. Do you know what I mean by that? That you were a real lawyer, and you were in the trenches and billing clients and rolling in the mud with people who are hurt or have done bad things or need your help. And that's what I mean by being a lawyer's judge. Um, can you talk a little bit about lawyers and their, their role in this, in the legal process and, you know, just your thoughts on that. So I think lawyers are, are just, incredibly important. They're integral to justice. And it's sad for me to see so many pro se self-represented litigants um, because it's, it's way too complicated. You know, I, I've said to uh, a few pro se litigants, uh, you know, this divorce that you think you can do yourself is going to alter your life. And you're, you don't know what I, I need to see you're guessing, you don't have a clue what's important to me as judge to make this decision. And it's not fair for me to help you. That's not what I'm here to do. And you've, you're completely unprepared. You haven't done anything. And I have to ask you, if you needed surgery, would you do that on yourself too? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's how important this is in my mind, that this, this event in your life is of critical importance and you need a lawyer. You know, um, if you need to borrow money, then borrow money. Uh, find someone to help you uh, because doing this on your own, good luck. So I think lawyers are incredibly important. Um, How do they help you do your job well? They help me when they, you know, and, and I talk to them about this, you know, when, when, when I, when, when they do their openings, I'll say, you know, tell me what relief you want from me and why I should give it to you. Mm -hmm. You know, those are the things I want to hear. Um, if there are, you know, the, the factors for child custody in the statute, tell me, you know, when you close this case today, tell me why the factors favor you. Um, and, and in every area of the law and lawyers, the, the good lawyers, they know that they do that. Um, and I, and I try to tell young lawyers that especially because they're learning. And we don't have any mentors today like, mm. like we did when, when I was young. You know, there were lots of people. You could call anybody. 
uh, and get some advice. If you knew somebody that did something, uh, some particular kind of law that you didn't know much about, you could call them. They'd offer you, you know, yeah, I've got a form for that, or tell you a case to go look at in the clerk's office, things like that. I don't know that lawyers do that anymore. They start out fresh and, you know, they figure it out or they don't. And if they don't, then they don't do very well. What's your pet peeve about lawyers that appear before you, if you have any? Not picking up the phone. Yeah. Calling each other. That's number one for me because I think so many things are so resolvable. Uh, whether it's scheduling or uh, uh, disputes about discovery. I mean, I don't mind getting on the phone and resolving a discovery dispute. That's part of the job. But if you just talk, and and again, the lawyers that are really, really good, they do. Mm-hmm. They do. I, I see uh, recitations of the meet and confer that, are, that go on and on and on. And what's fun to see about it is as the conversations go on and on, the issues get narrower and narrower mm-hmm. and narrower. So even though they didn't resolve everything, they mostly resolved it. And so talking is incredibly important. And, you know, I, th- I just think a, 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 in the in the real time conversation is what gets things done. Um, when you send an email, maybe they read it at the same day you did. Maybe they read it tomorrow. Maybe you did it really fast and uh, it looks to them like you're being abrupt, but you were just in a hurry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're not synchronized. They call it non-synchronous communication. That's what's going on. And so uh, it doesn't lead to a meeting of the minds very fast. Sometimes it makes matters worse if somebody uh, feels offended. Whereas if you're on the phone, you're just a little more careful. And, and you know, you can develop relationships. I mean, I... I that idea that, that, and I think lawyers realize this, it's certainly a lawyer's training that uh, we, we disagree, but we're not disagreeable to each other. And I think people are pretty good about that. But to have a relationship with the other lawyers in your community and all those things, that's a good thing. You know, you, if you know that person and you know what's going on in their life a little bit because you talk to them, then you're going to be a little bit easier on them if something, if they've got something rough going on in their life and they they need you to back off a little bit, but people don't do that much anymore. Lawyers and judges too, but lawyers um, is what I'm going to ask you about first. Operate under the um, some pretty some pretty um, important rules of ethics. Can you speak just generally about what ethical problems do you see that come in front of you, if any? It's probably um, timeliness things. You know, the cases have languished too long mm-hmm. and, and now you've got a, a client that's upset and mad um, and the, the relationship between lawyer and client is disintegrating because the lawyer's too busy or, mm-hmm. you know, what, what causes things to drag out? The lawyer's too busy or it's a new area for them and they're nervous about it. You know, I remember Mark Gifford. I. When I first got appointed, he and I, I kind of joined his little ethics roadshow that mm-hmm. he did around yeah. the state. And uh, he, uh, he used to always say, everybody has that pile, and I have one right here, of stuff they need to get done. And if it's, if it's a pile of things that you don't want to look at, that pile will always be there. Uh, and that's, that's part of it. And then depending on where you are in, in your career, if you're new, be careful taking on stuff that you don't know anything about or get some help. Mm-hmm. You know, if I see a, a, a young lawyer take on a med mal, 
I'm thinking, oh, this is a disaster. This is going to be bad. And I've had, I've dismissed the med mal because the lawyer wasn't doing anything. Mm -hmm. And those are, those are kind of frightening things. So, so diligence probably. And then, uh, yeah, diligence, um, we're required to do that pursuant to 1.3. What about competence? Do you see a, do you, uh, 1.1, do you see lawyers taking on stuff that they, you mentioned the new lawyer that doesn't know what they're doing, but do you see lawyers that are not providing competent representation to their clients? It happens, I, it, but I don't think it happens a lot, but I, I see lawyers that uh, got in over their head on something, you know, and when somebody's offering you a retainer to take on a difficult thing, you got to remember that there's going to be some education time involved here. You're probably not going to be able to bill for that. Mm -hmm. And uh, your opponent's probably going to be ready for you. And so those are a little bit scary. The advocacy part of that, being a zealous advocate, is that a fine line for you as a judge? A lawyer who is zealously advocating for their client versus being overzealous or over um, overly aggressive about a case, is that a fine line for you as a judge? Or do you see... Do you see the reasons why lawyers have to do what they need to do on behalf of their clients to some extent? So it depends. And when you're in trial, um, you know, you're, you're being a zealous advocate to, during trial. That's when the battle mm -hmm. is joined. But if you're asking me for an ex parte temporary order that uh, awards you custody, then I think you have to be you have to act with complete candor, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, uh, I think I, you know, I've been burned by that. Um, you know, where I, I read the affidavit and, uh, and the petition and, and the request and I thought, Oh my goodness. And it turned out that it wasn't like that at all. And what do you think about that lawyer after that happens? I'm not happy. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, if I get another request, I'm less likely to, I'll say set it for a hearing. Yeah. You know, I don't, I, I'm not comfortable. The I had one when, when I was early on the bench, and, and I don't like ex parte orders at all, but sometimes they're necessary. And uh, this person had alleged that the other parent had taken the child to South Dakota and all these terrible things about that person. And it ended up being so not the case that... Uh, and that person in South Dakota got a lawyer, a very good family law lawyer in Casper and came down and just ripped that up. Mm -hmm. And it was awful. And well, lesson for me and uh, won't happen again. Hard lesson for that lawyer. Oh, yeah. Um, let's talk about um, objectivity. Uh, do you see what what kind of I mean, a lawyer has to sort of look at a case and give a client objective advice to the best that they can, not just be a cheerleader, right? Or quite frankly, not be a naysayer either and not understand their problems and just poo-poo them. How do you see that as a judge, that three point or um, 2.1 as an advisor, that that objective sort of advice, and I know you don't ever see that in the courtroom, but do you see it relayed in the courtroom when there's not objective advice being given? And that, that's kind of a confusing question, but I've always wondered, what do judges think and believe about what's going on behind the scenes with a client? 
Well, so you can tell if you have a, a client, if, if the lawyer, I can tell if the lawyer has a client that's difficult. Mm -hmm. They're they're difficult in the courtroom too. I mean, they they can't change their personality. They are who they are. They try, mm -hmm. but you can just see that, um, and you can kind of tell sometimes in the arguments that uh, uh, the lawyer is doing what their client is demanding that they do. You mm -hmm. know, they're making that argument, and it's just not wholehearted. You know, it's they're doing their best, but mm -hmm. it's it's hard to say what they're not really believing. And, and so that kind of, that's not a good way to go, but sometimes you gotta, you gotta represent your client. And if you're too far in to pull out, then I guess you, you get up and make that argument as best you can. But I think the better approach is to talk to people honestly about the, the risk that they're taking. Um, not, not in a way that you tell them, you don't, you don't think that they have a case or you don't think that they could prevail, but here's some of the things that are going to be that are going to come out in this trial and they're not going to be good for us and we've got to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And if you just tell me, well, put me on the stand and I'll deal with it. Well, that it doesn't work that way. You know, sometimes the weight of the evidence is more than just he said, she said. And so they got to know that. And, and hopefully if they know that they're, they're willing, but boy, they're difficult people out there. There's no doubt about that. And I don't miss doing that. Let's talk about, ethical rules that you as a judge and your and your brothers and sisters in the robes have to um, have to specifically watch for um, not only with lawyers but among your among your colleagues let's first talk about when when lawyers are in front of you um, and they have to be the the rules that pertain directly to you as a judge, candor to the tribunal, ex making sure that litigation is being expedited. We're talking about the 3.1, 3.2, 3.3 of the professional rules of conduct, bringing meritorious claims, um, making con making meritorious contentions, moving the case along, which I, as a lawyer, I find that to be a really difficult one to, to do, actually. Making sure that they're candid with you and candor toward the tribunal. How do those rules that relate directly to you, directly to the bench, how do those specifically come into your realm as a, as a, as a judge? And what do you think about those lawyers who maybe are skirting the line on those particular rules? If, if they do, I, you know, I don't, I don't know that they do. I think some, it happens occasionally, but it doesn't happen a lot. And, and if it's, uh, happens in open court and, and, and I'm there, I'm going to say something, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm not going to be a, the bad guy about it, but I'm going to tell him, you know, I don't think you're being honest with the court there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think that there's more to it than that or whatever it happens to be, or, you know, t timeliness and family law is an interesting area for that because I've had family law lawyers tell me that, you know, pushing a case necessarily isn't necessarily the best way to try a family law case. You know, I'm a chancery court judge and it has um, lots of active case management from the court. Um, we have three status conferences. We require uh, them to have three settlement conferences, one of which has to be with a mediator. Uh, and there's this checking in on, hey, how's the case going? Are we keeping our schedule? But that's because 
you know, the statute says mm-hmm. that we'll do those cases in 150 days, which is fast. Um, and so uh, you got to keep it moving. But some of the things I've learned from Chance Record is that that active case management isn't all bad, you know, to just ch- and the, the the status conferences are just kind of a first thing in the morning, you know, 830. How, you yeah. How are things going? Any problems? Are we meeting our deadlines? Mm-hmm. All right. Talk to you in a couple months. I mean, I think the, the, the dynamic in the family law area is you're dealing with a family, some of whom are maybe trying to reconcile, some of whom are dealing with trying to get documents so that they can actually get things moving along. Sometimes you have a client who doesn't communicate well with you. I know in this part of the world, you've got minors and folks who are on weird schedules, so they have a hard time connecting with their lawyer. I mean, it, it does make it a little... Um, I think the judges get blamed for not moving those family law cases along. And then also lawyers get blamed for not moving those family cases along. But sometimes it's the dynamic of the family that is making that case not move along. I'm just wondering how you would respond to that, generally speaking. I I think that's true. You see it all the time. And, um, you know, it's it's not always just that it's not necessarily a divorce. It could be a change. And the changes that cause uh, subsequent proceedings are usually a new person in one parent's life versus mm-hmm. the other. All those all those life events throw a you know a, a, a spike in the spokes. I mean, mm-hmm. it just somebody's now mad about that, and it affects everything. And there you go. And mm-hmm. so there needs to be a cooling off period. People need to kind of get back to center again. And that I, I understand that that takes time, and I generally don't push. Um, you know, I, um, I talk to other judges and I know a lot of judges will send out a, uh, a scheduling order immediately upon the last responsive pleading. I kind of wait for the lawyers to ask me and, mm-hmm. and maybe that's a bad thing. I don't know. Some people might be critical of that, but I just, I, I have confidence that lawyers will do what they need to do to get the case to a conclusion. And I don't think I need to interfere. And then if it sits for long enough, then I will interfere. And, and it'll get know, dismissed, uh, yeah. Yeah, or I'll send them a letter that's going to get dismissed at least and say, what's going on? And every once in a while, it'll be the second letter when I say, didn't I send you a letter uh, a few months ago? <laughs> Did you respond to my letter? Let's talk about the judicial canon of ethics, um, the ethics that you all have to operate under. I don't know if a lot of people know about your canon of ethics and what that entails. Can you tell us, generally speaking, what is the canon of judicial ethics? So there's there's a number of, of rules, just like the rules of ethics for lawyers, uh, that um, kind of dictate how we operate. And a lot of it is uh, geared towards us maintaining our independence, maintaining our uh, impartiality. So there are rules about ex parte communications. We're not supposed to talk with one side without the other side being present. And that's easy. But... When you start getting letters from people, you know, that they put in the court file, uh, well, those are ex parte communications, too. And so you got to deal with those things. You got to deal with them in the right way. Mm -hmm. You know, I I have them filed and sent to the parties. If you send a letter to me, it's going to be sent to both sides. Uh, You know, I'm not. I'm not here to receive letters from you or your family about your case. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not part of my job. So. but, you know, there's stuff about what 
what your staffs can do, uh, you know, because, of, you know, the rules apply to them, too. And, uh, and, and to live, a, as I tell probationers, a worthy and respectable life, you know, that you uh, you don't put yourself in compromising positions that would uh, throw bad light on the judiciary and on to you. Um, and that, you know, those are all they're good things. They kind of lead to that uh, solitary existence that we have. You know, um, you're not going to see me out at the bar mm -hmm. um, because it's a small town. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I don't know that people necessarily think anything of it, but they might. And, you know, we uh, so I'm on the commission for judicial conduct and ethics. So um, tell me a little bit about that. What what is that and how do judges find themselves in that system? So uh, there are two district court judges, one circuit court judge, and then I'm trying to remember how many lay members we have. I think it's five. Any lawyers? And and uh, three lawyers. Okay. And that group breaks up into subgroups the way that it works. So there are uh, invest investigatory panels and there are the pan adjudicatory panels. And so um, our executive director, anytime a complaint is filed about a judge, the executive director assembles a uh, panel that will consist of a lawyer, a judge, and one or two lay members. Um, and that panel will review that complaint and make an, an initial determination of what, where that complaint should go. Um, one of the things my experience has been, and I'm almost, I'm almost to the end of two terms. Um, my term, my second term ends in March, so I'll go off. But my experience has been, there are some serious things that happen occasionally, but not very often. Most complaints are from lay people that are mad about a result. Mm -hmm. They're not happy with what happened to them in district court or circuit court or, and they're, they're not represented. And so they send a letter. Well, a complaint about a result isn't a complaint about a, an ethical problem. Mm -hmm. And so those get dismissed out of hand. Sometimes there may be something there that we know, oh, there might be something wrong with this one. So then we can hire counsel to investigate. We can do some investigation our own, but not, you know, I can look at the court record or things mm -hmm. like that. But if we're really going to look at the facts, we would hire uh, counsel to do that. And then if we do decide there's a violation, then there it would go to a uh, adjudicatory panel and they would, you know, the judge could hire a lawyer, the judge could do it on his or her own, uh, but there would be a hearing at some point to decide what kind of discipline. There's <laughs> rules in both the canon of judicial ethics um, and in the professional rules of conduct for lawyers. Both sides have a reporting obligation. Right. That if you see it, you have to tell someone, you have to report it. And that's oversimplifying, but it's true. It's true. And so do you see lawyers and judges reporting each other or even like lawyers reporting judges, judges reporting lawyers or judges reporting judges? Not much. And, and my approach has always been if I see something that is a clear violation, um, and I don't see judges, but if I see a lawyer, what I have done is talk to the lawyer and say, I think this is a violation. I think I have a duty to report. 
I think it would be better if you reported. Mm -hmm. So I will give you a chance to do that. To self-report. Yeah. Because I think that is better. To step up and say, oops, I made a mistake. And yes, it is a violation. What if you hear about your colleagues? I mean, you said you don't usually see judges. But what if you hear about or see colleague malfeasance is not the right word, but, you know, unethical, unethical problem with a colleague. And do you see many, I'm stammering with this question because it is hard for a lawyer to report a lawyer. It's hard for a lawyer, even harder for a lawyer to report a judge. I can't imagine how hard it is for a judge to report another judge. I think the, I think the same feelings apply. I think it's hard to report a lawyer and it's hard to report a judge, but I think you have to. Um, but I think there's other things you also can do. The same thing, you know, mm-hmm. to tell a judge, you know, you need to get help. You need to do something, um, you know, and, and I know that there um, have been efforts with judges who were in a bad time or a bad place in their life where um, lawyers have gotten together, you know, either our conference or the circuit conference or even the Supreme Court and, and gone mm-hmm. and, and visited with that judge and said, hey you got to do something. This is not good. Well, I've taken up so much of your time, but I have a couple of um, funny questions that people have asked. I sort of sent out a little, okay. a little informal survey saying, if you could ask a judge anything, Uh-oh. what would you ask them? And here's a couple of them. What do you wear under your robe? This was a legitimate question that a lay person asked me. I wear the clothes I wore to work. There you go. You're not naked under there. Is that no, what you're saying? I, okay. I will say, uh, Back when I was a municipal court judge, um, one time I, they had a prisoner that needed to be seen. This is, they kind of changed. It used to be 48 hours, and then they made it 72, so it went over a weekend. But we used to have to see people on the weekends. And I was out doing something, and uh, in shorts and flip-flops, mm-hmm. and um, they had this guy that needed to be seen. And I thought, oh, heavens. So I said, just meet me at the courthouse. I was close by. And so they brought him over. And so I'm, I'm in shorts and flip-flops. And I didn't realize how silly it looked that my bare legs were showing at the bottom of the robe. So that was I, that was a lesson <laughs> to be learned. Put on some dress shoes and some socks at the very least. Yeah. What is the funniest thing you've ever seen happen in court? Lighthearted, funny thing, if anything. Oh, I've, there's there's a few. I mean, when I was a municipal court judge in Evanston, um, a, a company came into town and uh, opened up one of those, uh, what do you call them? Sex stores. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and porn, A porn store. To, and uh, so yeah. the, the city was trying to kind of legislate them out. You know, they were right on the main drag through town. Well, they, they still are, I think. But... Uh, they passed a law that uh, limited the size of the moving viewing rooms um, in the back of the place. And uh, we had a trial. They charged the organization uh, against the owner for having the rooms too large, worrying about what goes on in those rooms while they're watching porn. And that trial was one of the funniest things I've ever been a part of. Uh, the person who was defending the owner would not admit that it was a porn store. And the, uh, the, the city attorney at the time, Dennis Bull, who's a friend, he, uh, 
he swore himself off because he was involved in the civil stuff, the dry drafting of the ordinance and everything mm -hmm. that caused this problem. So Jim Phillips was the, the special prosecutor. And since uh, defense counsel would not agree, stipulate that it was a porn store, he put he required Jim to prove that it was. And so Jim got the uh, manager on the stand, uh, one of the women that worked there, and described every aspect of everything that store did. And we had a six-person jury, all women, probably all LDS, nice ladies. And at first, they were mortified. I've got my head down. I'm just listening to this. <laughs> and pretty soon, you hear giggles and laughs, and everybody kind of loosened up. But it was something. It was something. So that was funny. And there's a transcript of that. And it's funnier. The transcript is funnier than my telling. I don't think I could say some of the things that went on in that in that trial. I grew up in Evanston and know that porn store very or that sex shop very well. I mean, not I have never been inside it, but it's right on the main drag. Is that the one you're talking about? Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and in fact, you know, that's not a place that I would ever go. But I kicked myself after the trial was over because those six ladies and I had never been in that store and I should have ordered that we go have a view yes. just to see what was going on in there. <laughs> Both, but I, I wasn't smart enough to think of that. I had a case here where there was a kind of a well-known fellow uh, who got fired from his job. He, he, he was uh, a local vet and uh, he got fired for being kind of an arrogant so-and-so to all the staff. And Dick Honecker was representing the veterinarian employer. And uh, this guy was representing himself. He'd had a lawyer, but his lawyer had had enough of him too. So he was representing himself and he was at the podium and he looked over at Dick and he said, Mr. Honecker, how are you going to prove I'm arrogant? And Dick just said in his soft voice, I'm just gonna let you talk. <laughs> And I and I laughed at that. That made me laugh. That that is kind of funny. To wrap it up, if you sum up your legal life, judge, lawyer, municipal judge, that kind of thing, if you sum that up, what are what are words that you would leave our listener or listeners? I'm not sure how many folks listen to this podcast, but hopefully lawyers will. So there's what a, would you leave us with? I have a favorite quote uh, from Judge Learned Hand, and it's about the spirit of liberty. And to, uh, I'm just going to paraphrase it because it's kind of long. But one of the lines is, what is the spirit of liberty? I cannot define it. I can only tell you my own faith. It is the spirit which, which seeks to understand the mind of other men and women and the spirit that weighs uh, their interest alongside its own without bias. Uh, it's the spirit which is not too sure that it is right. And I think as a judge, you have to live like that. You don't think that you're right all the time. You have to listen and do your best, but you can't sit up there and think you know everything because you don't. Judge Lavery, thank you so much for your time and thanks for talking to us today. You're so welcome.